This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. And let's open up to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We are uh, working our way from uh, Genesis 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11, and uh, we have spent uh, three weeks now uh, on the creation account. Um, so if you're new, you can, you can hear those online. You can just go to our website and uh, can listen to the background messages if you would like. But today we are in Genesis chapter 2. And uh, Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, they are really a unit. They, they function together. It's kind of one, one account, one story, because we've moved from creation, and now we're getting some detail about the creation of humans, and uh, then we are getting their experience in the garden. So chapters 2 and 3 really function together, and th- they really answer the question, what is wrong in the world? What, what is wrong with the world. Why is, why is this world the way that it is? And uh, each passage we sort of looked at and, and thought about what the first readers uh, in Israel, how, how this would have landed on them. Um, likely the first readers are those who are in the wilderness. Um, they are those who have uh, probably have some questions. I mean, they had been God's people enslaved in Egypt, and so they had known hard work and labor and difficulty. Uh, they lacked the freedom to worship, and then God delivered them uh, out of Egypt and freed them, and now they are in the wilderness. And all kinds of things happen in the wilderness that just really aren't pleasant and aren't good. You have this promise in front of you. You are awaiting uh, to go into the promised land uh, that God has provided. And you are suffering in the wilderness. This is, this is what the wilderness, it wasn't like a nice camping trip. Let's just go on a camping trip. Uh, this is what Deuteronomy 8, this is how it describes that season for Israel. This great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. So the description of life in the wilderness is at various times we're thirsty. There's times of judgment. The earth opens up and swallows some people who are in rebellion. There's a plague that happens. There's this account of snakes that kind of come, and actually we're going to look at that on Good Friday because it ties into Christ, but uh, foreshadows him. But there are snakes uh, that come and bite the people, uh, and they like it is, it is miserable. And so you can imagine them asking, why is life like this? And wh- why is life so hard? Why is it so difficult? Why is there death? All of these people die before making it into the promised land. And God reveals something about the way things ought to be and the way things shouldn't be in these first two chapters. And we all bring questions ourselves to a text, uh, to the text of Scripture in our lives. We all have issues where we say, why is life like this? Why am I lonely? Why am I battling depression? Why did he or she die? Why did my child die? Why did my mom die? Why did my friend die? Why is life so painful? Why is my job so frustrating? 
That, that, that question's answered in chapters 2 and, two and 3. Well, why, why can't I just change and be the person I want to be? Just snap my fingers and I am who I want to be. Why, why is there cancer? Why do I have this lingering health problem? Why was I abused? Why did our marriage fail? Why is my loved one an addict? Not not just personal issues, but global issues. Why is there war? And why is there suffering? And why is there starvation? And why is there human trafficking? And and why why are there tsunamis? And why are there earthquakes? Why is this the way the world is supposed to be, both at a micro level, my personal experience, and at a macro level, globally? Why is the world the way it is? And Genesis 2 and 3 shows us that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it was created to be. It's not the way it will be. But it's the way it is now. And through these two chapters, we get a much clearer picture of both God's design and purpose for creation, as well as why things have gone south, why there is suffering and sin and and problems, as well as what God, we get a glimpse, a glimpse of what God intends to do about it as well. How will God fix the situation? How will he redeem the situation? So I want to approach this very much like I did the first chapter. Today I'm going to give, um, we're going to cover verses 4 through 17, and I'm going to kind of make some broad, uh, kind of explain the text broadly. That's what we did in the first time. First chapter we looked broadly, and then we drilled down specifically into the creation of uh, man, which we'll look at again today because it's retold. Um, And I'd like to do that. And then next week is Easter. And then I'd like to make some very specific application from these passages. The week after Easter, uh, we're going to camp on verses 15 through 17, which we're about to read. And I'm going to talk about God and your job. And then the next week, I'm going to talk about God and marriage. God and marriage. So we're going to talk about work and marriage out of this chapter on two separate messages. But today will be uh, something that will prepare and kind of tee that up. So let's begin reading in verse 4 of chapter 2 and uh, see how things were when they were first created. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The, the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. 
And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this glorious survey of your creation, of your work, um, of your intention, of your good pleasure to grant us life, of your kindness to create a specific space, a sacred space to, to interact with the people you created. We thank you, Lord, that you have created all things very good, and that though they have fallen, and though the glory of the initial creation is, is not what we see around us today or what we experience, we thank you that you are redeeming, that you have saved us, and that you will return. And once again, things will be perfect in a new heaven and a new earth. So Lord, we thank you for the hope that faces us, that's in front of us. And I, I pray that today we would just get a glimpse of you and what you've done, that we would celebrate and worship you for who you are, uh, and that you would grant us great vision and purpose to live our lives uh, for your glory, Lord. So speak to us through your word. We are listening. Help us to understand and uh, help us to apply and help us to respond to you in a way that you're worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing we see here really uh, is very similar to what we read uh, at the beginning in chapter 1, is that God gives life. God gives life. Uh, We see in chapter 4, it's sort of a review. These are the generations. We'll see this like, I think, 10 or 11 times in the the overall book of Genesis. We won't see them all. But uh, these are the generations. It's a formula that happens throughout the book that introduces a sort of a new story and a new account. And here's the first one. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So it's a, a repeat of what we saw at the beginning, that God made the heavens and the earth. Um, there was the, 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 we get the context of his creation of man. Uh, there was no bush in the field, verse 5. This was a time before there was uh, fully grown vegetation in this area. There was no rain. There was no man to sort of irrigate uh, for the, the, from the rivers. There was no irrigation uh, at this time. He needed to come and work the ground, is what it says in verse 6. So God is providing for his creation. There is a mist or there is a cloud uh, that is watering uh, the, the ground, some kind of subterranean means that God is bringing water, and uh, it, it is just the setting, uh, the setting for God's forming of man. And that's what we see in verse 7. In verse 7, uh, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the bread of life, uh, the breath of life. I'm already thinking New Testament, the bread of life. That's Jesus, just so Christ-centered are my sermons that I even, even my slip-ups bring in the Lord, the bread of life, but uh, would that it were so. But the, the breath of life, he put in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
And so this is sort of a recounting of what we read in chapters 1, verses 26 through 28, where we studied last week that we were made in the image of God. That was uh, general, and this is specific. Now we're talking about Adam, and in the end of chapter 2, we're talking about the creation of Eve. Now, last week, we looked at the creation of man, and we talked about how we were created in the image of God, that we were created to, uh, there are certain human attributes that resemble God, that reflect him, the ability to think, the ability to uh, rationalize, the ability to communicate, the ability to create, num- numbers of ways that we reflect God. We talked about how we are spiritual beings just as he is, and we are uh, able to commune with God. So there's a relational dimension to being created in the image of God. God speaks to the humans that he's created in the creation account, but nothing else does he speak to and have conversation as opposed, except for let there be, um, speaks them into existence. We talked about how man is given the responsibility to exercise dominion, to subdue the earth, and that, that men and women are created as the apex of creation to oversee and have dominion over all that God has created. So with that being true, the glory of the creation of humans, you would kind of expect something more majestic, uh, something more sort of amazing about us and our creation. But what you read is, well, no pun intended, it's very earthy. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. We're, We're just made of dirt initially. God takes this and he forms man. He creates matter, and then from the matter, he, from the earth, he forms man. This word form is used to uh, sometimes to describe what a potter does with clay. He shapes and he forms the clay. And so that's very regular and very unimpressive about what we're made of, but it's glorious. It's a glorious revelation about God that he can take the dust of the earth and from there create the human eyeball and the brain, and the heart, and the nerves, the the muscular system, all the organs, and that we work just as we do. That that the greatest scientists in the world still, we we know a lot, but we, we still, there's much mystery to the way the human body works and functions. We don't know it all. And the fact that God just takes the dust of the earth, the dirt of the earth, and like we're the clay, and he forms us, it speaks volumes about God. It speaks volumes about his glory. And when we read that, it really puts things into perspective. God is to be worshipped for creating us. Now, what happens in our society is we worship the clay and not the potter. And so we're fixated on the health of the clay and the shape of the clay and the appearance of the clay, and the age of the clay, and the comfort, by all means, the comfort of the clay. We live our lives absorbed in the clay and can miss what the, what the potter, what the master has done in forming us and creating us. And so while we want to look to the Lord and glorify him in our creation, and why we don't want to worship the body, we we also don't want to minimize or dismiss the body and the fact that we are created in a physical world as physical beings. That's really one of the first things we get here. I mean, right off the bat, when we talk, when we get a word about the creation of humanity, this verse, verse 7 alone, does away 
was sort of the, the dualistic idea that, that spirit is good and body and physical is bad. That's not what we get. We don't get that, that, that what matters is the spirit and we're just a spirit that is trapped in a body. That's not biblical. That's not a biblical idea that we are a spirit which is good imprisoned in a body which is bad. That's Greek philosophy. That's not the Bible. The, the, note this. God creates the physical first. So great is the priority that we are embodied, that we are physical and live in a physical world. That's where he starts. He doesn't create a spirit and then make a body around it. He creates a body first of all. He creates, it's like the physical world. He creates a body and it is very good. God's assessment after the creation, because we're retelling the creation of man here. After man is already created, and uh, in verse 31 of chapter 1, we say God, we see that God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. Okay, man's already created then, and then we're going back and getting the, detail, the details here. This is kind of a flashback passage, if you will. So man's already created, and God says it is very good, and he starts with the body. He starts with giving us senses, for instance, in a physical world that is lush, that is beautiful, that is glorious, that has sights, sounds, smells, food. And and some of our Christian view really minimizes this, and it's a sub-Christian view, it's not a biblical view, really minimizes the physical life and has the idea that anything that is sort of spiritual, so to speak, is really important. So prayer is really important. Eating is just something you have to do. Um, prayer and reading the spirit, reading God's word, which is God breathed, is really important. But something physical like working and keeping the garden, which he does in verse 15, that, that is just what you have to do to make some money so that you can get a break and go read your Bible and pray. But that's not the way it's created. We're created physical beings and we're, giving, we're given senses to appreciate God and enjoy his creation, appreciate him in his physical world. And aren't you great? We are given eyes to see. We're given eyes to see the beauty of creation. Look at verse uh, nine. This is, this is fascinating that he puts them in a garden. He makes every tree spring up that is pleasant uh, to the sight and good for food. It's not just I'm going to feed you and sustain you so that you have enough energy to go pray. He creates food, and I'm big on prayer. I'm not downplaying prayer. I'm just taking something that we think is very spiritual and saying that here God is saying, hey, I'm creating trees not just in some utilitarian fashion so that you can get some fruit, so that you can eat, so that you can go do something spiritual. He's saying, I want you to see that and enjoy that. Aren't you glad that we have eyes that we can see beauty? When God says everything is very good, it's a statement about, it's an aesthetic statement. Now, it's true morally that everything is good too, for there is no sin at this point. But it's it's an aesthetic statement. God sees what he has done and is glorious, and he's granted us sight to see so that we can see. This morning I was polishing my notes, and I was watching the sunrise, and I thought, wow, I just wish everybody was right here, and maybe you were, because I just thought, this is a better illustration. I can't give an illustration that competes with this. I can't say, like, I was walking along one day, and I saw this really, really pretty car, and there's nothing that's going to compete with this. 
And I just watched the sunrise. God created us with sight to see that and say, isn't God glorious? Or to appreciate a work of art. Or to appreciate a work of art created by an unbeliever who, because he or she's an image bearer, is by common grace able to produce something that is true, that is proportionate, that is glorious, that is beautiful. And in some way, we have an instinctive ability by by God to appreciate and evaluate beauty as he does because we're created in his image. And that's part of living in a physical world, which was created originally perfectly. And aren't you great you have, you have ears to hear so that you can hear the, the, the waves. If you take a beach vacation, you can hear the waves at the ocean. You can hear the thunder. And it's a reminder that God is glorious. God is powerful. God has created a good world, a fallen world now to be sure, but a good world nonetheless and originally good. So we have a sense of, of hearing so that we can hear thunder, so that we can hear a child laughing, giggling. What a great sense that God has given us. He gives them, makes them living beings, and he gives us ears to detect living beings. I'm so glad we didn't walk in here today and just think. I'm all about thinking about God with the mind, meditation on the word. Absolutely. But I'm glad we didn't walk in and think. But we heard instruments and we heard voices. God created us in a physical world. He gives us, gives us a sense of smell so that we can smell a flower, so that we can smell the smoke that comes off the steak on the grill. And this is why to be a fully, a fully worshiping creature, this is why I order fa- steak fajitas. Because when fajitas come out, there is sound, there is sizzle, there is sight, there is smoke, there is smell that burned meat, dead cow, and there is taste in a physical world. So God is really honored when you eat steak fajitas for the glory. And I'm really not joking. Feel free to laugh. I'm kind of being silly, but I'm not joking. That is a moment where we should thank the Lord. We, we are messed up. We think, okay, let's get to the spirit part. He gave him a living being. That's the real spirit part. Don't talk about all this kind of fleshly stuff. By the way, when flesh is used in the New Testament to talk negatively, the spirit against the flesh, it's not talking about my hand. It's not talking about my hair. It's talking about the sinful nature. The flesh is the, the nature that is opposed to God. When Paul uses flesh in that way, he's not talking about kneecaps and toenails. He's talking about a heart that is opposed to God. So we, we, don't, we often miss the worship of God because of this. We don't think about sight. He's given us the sense of touch, the sense of being able to feel physically. Yesterday I went on a walk and it was warm and I just could feel the sun on me. And I thought, wow, isn't this better? I mean, the snow's fun for a day or two, but isn't this better than being cooped up inside in in the winter? We feel that. Or the touch of a human, the hug of a friend. Or the intimate touch uh, in marriage between a husband and wife, the sense of feel that God makes that a spiritual experience, but a physical as well. God created the body in a physical world. Touch of feel, sight, Smell, hearing, all of these things. God makes man a physical being in a physical world to use his physicality to enjoy the gifts of God and to worship God. Now the problem is when humans take the physical senses and deify those, make those gods. So what I want to live for is what I can see, not the person who created the goodness that I can see. 
What I want to live for is what I feel, not worshiping the God who gave me the sense of touch and feel to begin with so that I could enjoy his good gifts for his glory. It's when we cut God out of the equation and we make senses and experience God, that's the problem. But all of those senses were given to us, created physically, made from the dust of the earth, so that we would glorify our creator in a physical world, that we would enjoy the creation given biblical guidelines. Because God does give biblical guidelines. He doesn't say just feel anything that feels good. And if that means being drunk to feel good, that's okay. No, he forbids drunkenness. But he, so, so he doesn't say do whatever you want to do. He gives us guidelines, but we are to enjoy him in that. So God is glorified when we as creatures in the physical world honor him for the gifts he has given us. Not, not seek to live according to do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. We read that in the New Testament in Colossians, for instance, where there are people that are saying, uh, you need to be aesthetic. You need, I mean, not, you need to be ascetic. You need to be an ascetic person that denies yourself anything physically pleasing. You need to deny yourself, and that's godliness. And Paul says, you will not grow in godliness through denying yourself that God has provided, what he has provided. That's what he says in Colossians, I believe it's chapter 3. So, the very good part of the physical, uh, physical world means that we are not to abstain from all physical, just eat things that don't taste good because I'm suffering for Jesus. You know, just don't, don't see anything that's appealing to the eyes ever or hear anything. Uh, just, just, j- just deny all, uh, all physicality and just be a spiritual person. Are there, are there areas in your life that God wants you to celebrate his gifts through nature, through the gifts that he provides, through the pleasure of sight, sound, touch, and smell for his glory? I think I have been low personally on the scale of appreciating nature. So I'm not, I'm not wilderness survival guy. I'm not camper man. Uh, I'm not just longing to be, I got to be outdoors every second of the day or something like that. Um, so because of that, because that's, never, that's not how I grew up, or just, you know, living in the wild or, and, and really longing for the wild. I mean, when I dream, I'm not dreaming of the wild. So, I, you know, that, I, I feel like I've been challenged in this study to look around and pay attention and give God glory for what he has done. C.S. Lewis warns about the very thing I'm talking about. And he says this, some of us have a problem because we're more spiritual than God we're wrong. We're not more godly than God, but we're, we think we're more spiritual because we've said just the spirit, not the physical world. And that's not the way God created things. Now, someone will ask, but doesn't the body die? And doesn't the spirit contend to live on once the body dies? Yes, but that's the effect of the fall. It's not supposed to be that way. Yes, the body dies, but what is the yearning of creation? And yes, it's better, it's better to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. Yes, because if we die, we are present with the Lord. Uh, but that's not the ultimate state. The ultimate state of redemption is when the resurrection comes and we are resurrected and we have resurrected bodies that are joined, spiritual bodies that are joined with our spirit. 
So the fact that the body is dying and decaying so that the spiritual is the eternal and the body is bad, that's a wrong way of looking at it. We will be embodied in heaven. We will be, have spiritual bodies, whatever that is, I don't know exactly, but we will have bodies, and we will have the scriptures very clear, we will have senses. If you read in the Old Testament, I mean, if you read in the book of Revelation, for instance, the, the glory of heaven is seeing Jesus. You will think about him, I'm sure, but seeing him, the glory of heaven is hearing the voices, the roaring voices saying, worthy is the lamb. That's the glory of what we hear and what we see. So th- this, is, this is important that we understand that we are both. We are, as one author said, an embodied soul or we are an ensouled body either way. We did a whole study on this uh, in terms of how do we understand the pleasures of life. We studied through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so if you're new here, you could go to our website. And I taught through, and, and I and the other pastors taught through that whole book. And this is a big theme of it. It's a big theme of the book. All of, a, all of our lives are an expression of our relationship with God and not just the things that we narrowly call spiritual, not just those things. That's why we're here today, by the way. That's why we didn't just say, hey, why, why didn't... That, that's why we're here, because there's something about being embodied together in worship of the Lord. There's something about the people of God in our bodies, in a physical world, coming together to glorify God in a broken, fallen world where things are not the way they're supposed to be, with broken, fallen people glorifying God. There's something glorious, and there's something worthy about that. And so that's why we are here, and that's why all of life matters. That's why we don't divide life into physical and spiritual, physical bad, spiritual good. Uh, We get that from the very beginning of the passage. He formed the man first, and then he not only forms us, but he breathes into the man's nostrils, Adam. He breathes into his nostrils, verse 7, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We are image bearers. We talked about that in some detail last week. But we are also personally formed and personally created. We looked at that last week as well in Psalm 139. We are knit together in our mother's womb. God has a purpose. God creates us. God forms us. We're not just a collection of chemicals that showed up. We have a life-giving spirit. We are living beings. And so every person has dignity and value and worth, not only because they're image bearers, but because God has personally created them and formed them. And I understand this is the first creation, but the only person that has life is a person that God has breathed life into them, meaning that life is a gift. And that's the first point we've been talking about. God gives life. He gives the body. He gives the soul. Life is the gift of God. I have four kids, and so I have been at four births in my life. Five if I count my own. <laughs> but my memory's a bit, I can, it's a bit fuzzy on that one. Uh, and so my wife is in the nursery, so I'm going to tell this the best I can, and she'll probably listen to this. But she had some of our kids, this is so bad that I can't remember. She, she had some of our kids naturally without... Um, without drugs or whatever. I think one, she wanted to do it. And then after that, she's like, no, give me this. I mean, we got there too late and it was too late. And so anyway, uh, so I, I remember, uh, 
she remembers Genesis 3. There will be, uh, you know, pain bir- there will be pain in childbearing. But I remember that too, because when she didn't have anesthesia, her nails were dug into my arm. <laughs> and so that, that verse applies to men sometimes as well. So she was squeezing blood running down my arms at the birth. And I actually said to the doctor, she doesn't want the epidural, but I will. I'll take it because I think the insurance says we get one epidural and it would be very sexist to say it just goes to the lady. I'm here too. And the insurance is in my name. So can I get it? I'll need it from the waist up, not the waist down. But so anyway, the childbearing of Genesis three, I observed that in in my wife and uh, God bless her and all of you ladies for uh, going through that and ever being willing to do it again. Uh, but at the birth of each of our children, when I saw them, when I held them, when I, my wife and I held them, I mean, if you've been at a birth, the sense is this. This is a miracle. I, I didn't hold the baby and say, honey, aren't we great? I mean, I said, congratulate, you did a great job. You get what I'm saying? But in terms of producing this life, I didn't say, you did great breathing the breath of life into this little one. I didn't say, I am so worthy. Look what I have created. No, I said, and even the unbeliever, I think, would have to say, there's a mystery here. This is something beyond. Yeah, there's a biological explanation, but there is a wonder at this life. Every life is the gift of God. Every life is formed and the breath of life into that child. We don't stand back and say, look what I did. We say, look what God has done. He is worthy to be worshiped and lives are worthy of our care. And as I mentioned last week, they're worthy of our protection as well uh, in the womb and out of the womb because they are created by God. God gives life. Number two, God gives paradise. He not only creates man and gives him life, but he creates a glorious environment. Look at verses eight and nine. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he puts man in a, in a, in a garden. He creates him and then places him in the garden. That's so what it says. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Now, Eden is the way the story reads. This isn't a myth. Uh, it's not written as a myth. It's written in a way that shows that it's historical. We could say it's supra-historical as well. It's above. It's historical, but it's also above historical. The effects of what Adam does affects all of us. So there's relevance beyond this story for us, but it's historical. And one of the reasons we know that is because it, it's given a real geography. It's not once upon a time in a land. No, it's like, here's where it is. There were these four rivers. Now, we, in verses 10 through 14, we don't know where Eden was, um, We don't know where it was. I'm holding out for Texas, but we don't know where it was. And here's why, because there's two rivers here we don't know. Verse 11, the Pishon, we don't know where that is. Uh, Verse 13, the Gihon, we don't know where that is. We do know where the Tigris and Euphrates are, and they're mentioned as well. So in that historical area, most people, most scholars would say this is is Mesopotamia. This uh, This is probably somewhere around the Persian Gulf. So a lot's happened since then. There's been a worldwide flood since then. Um, there has been climate change since then. Rivers have dried up, so we can't, we can't put exactly where it is, but it is a real place, 
And the best guess out there for those who are interested is probably that area of the world, in the Middle East, not in the U.S. So that's because of the two rivers mentioned. So he puts them in a real place. He creates them in Eden, and then he creates this garden. God plants a garden, verse 8, and he puts them in there. So while it's a literal place, there's also something being communicated here. The word Eden means delight. Delight. And in the, in the Hebrew word, it means delight. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, the word that's translated Eden is, is the word we get paradise from. So sometimes it's called delight or paradise. The word garden indicates something. The word means something that is enclosed, fenced off, and protected. So I don't know how you envision, uh, but it's not a couple of rows of vegetables like out in your backyard right now for the family garden. It's not talking about that. It's more in this in, in Eden, paradise, there's created a walled or fenced or separate area that is a garden. And so we probably shouldn't think a couple of rose bushes and, you know, hope the tomatoes make it this year kind of a thing like we have. We should be thinking about a, like a botanical garden. Something with fruit trees and shade trees and streams and pools and pathways and rich vegetation and colors and life. Something really beyond what we can imagine. And so there is this area where called the garden. It's it's implied in the text is that it's sort of a sanctuary. It is in, in paradise. There is a separated off special area. The paradise of paradise, we could say. And this is the area where God meets, where God is with man in the garden. So it's kind of a sanctuary. And another place we get this, I'm going to talk about these verses uh, the week after Easter. But in verse 15, it says man was put there to uh, work it and keep it. Those two verbs, work it and keep it, when they're used elsewhere in the, New Test- uh, in the Old Testament, are almost always used of priestly duties. And so it's sort of a picture of Adam as priest Adam in the garden where the presence of God is. We could say it's sort of a temple garden where there is fellowship with God. And even when the tabernacle is built later, the instructions of the tabernacle, there are these, uh, these mentionings and directions that, that hearken back to the garden of Eden. So this is this lush, beautiful environment for man to enjoy. We saw that, that, that they're good for sight. It's pleasant for sight. It's good for food. So God provides food for man. He puts him in this wonderful place where everything is glorious to behold, where there is unfiltered, unblocked communication with God in this garden sanctuary. Um, and he's also given something that's wonderful to do. He's called to work and keep the garden. Again, I don't want to develop that out right now. We'll look at it in two weeks. But let's just note this, that he is given a task of work to do prior to the fall. So your job, working, is not the result of the fall, but working is assigned by God when everything is good in a perfect world to work. So when we think paradise, okay, paradise is not a hammock and a cool drink with a little umbrella in it. That, that is not paradise, biblically speaking. There's a seventh day for rest, so it's good to get rest, to get a vacation, uh, and to enjoy a hammock and rest. That's all great. That's wonderful. Good idea. We want to celebrate rest as well, the seventh day. Um, However, our image of paradise is I don't have anything to do. And the biblical image of paradise is God has provided much to do and much to behold and much to see and savor of his glory. Just open your eyes and look around. Pick up a shovel for the glory of God is what he's doing. So he's working. It's not just, it's not do nothing. That's paradise. 
paradise is the presence of God in this sanctuary of God, this garden sanctuary where they are working, uh, not just priestly duties, but uh, you know, turning a shovel or whatever he's doing, irrigating so that the plants get water, uh, where he is working with the glory of God, provide, everything provided by God, God recognized man, fellowshipping with God. This is paradise. It's not spirits floating on a cloud in heaven. It's people serving God in the joy of knowing their creator. There's a lot of application that I'm saving, but there's a lot of application of that for how we face tomorrow morning, isn't there? Or for how we face this afternoon or how we enjoy the lunch we're about to go have. There's a lot here in us, uh, for us there. Last point is that God rules in paradise. So God gives life, God gives paradise, God rules in paradise. If there's anything clear about this passage, it is that God rules over man and that man is to enjoy God. Verse 9, the the sight and the food he's to enjoy, but he is also to obey God. Verses 16 and 17 tell us that in the garden uh, that he may eat of every tree of the garden, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall die. So there is a tree of life. Uh, We read that uh, um, in verse 9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's two trees. And so God is ruling. He is telling man that he may eat anything except from the one tree. So there is the tree of life that uh, we don't know exactly what the tree of life does or what kind of fruit it bore or something like that. But it does seem to be that every time Adam ate from the tree of life, he's, he's not present yet, but every time Adam ate from the tree of life, uh, that he's reminded of God's life. His own life is extended, and he's reminded of God's life, uh, to, that God is the one who has provided and is the giver of life. It's a reminder that he exists by God's power as he eats from the tree of life. He's free to eat of any tree except one. The second tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he is, he is prohibited. This is the first command of the Bible. It's the only law we've read so far. He is prohibited from eating from this tree. What, if the tree of life reminds him that God is the giver of life and the sustainer of life and the provider of life, what is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What does it represent? Well, it represents the fact that Adam is a man created and that God is supreme. Adam is not autonomous. Adam does not determine right and wrong. Adam does not direct the way he wants things to be. Adam is submitted to the God who has created and given him this one law. He is not independent. He is dependent. He is responsible on God to God, and he is called to obey this sole command. He's not self-determined, but he has determined what he can do by the authority of God. It's a reminder of the authority of God. God determines good and evil. God determines right and wrong. God determines permission and prohibition. God determines what, we, what man, the creature, can and cannot do. And any time, starting in the garden, man determines himself 
what is acceptable and right and wrong apart from the word of God, because the word says, the word of God is you shall not eat of this tree. Anytime man determines what is right, what is acceptable, what is natural, what is healthy, what I'm free to do, what I think is right in my own mind, in my own eyes, determined by me, whenever there is self-determined morality apart from God, we're in trouble. And that's exactly what happens in the garden. It is, it is Adam and Eve that choose to eat and determine themselves. They're self-determining what is right and wrong for me. What do I want to do? As opposed to submitted to what God prescribes. So that's what's going on. We don't know exactly what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. I don't know what the, what the fruit is on it. Uh, we don't know exactly, but we know that it represents that God determines right and wrong. And if we ignore God and self-determine, there is death is the result. One commentator said, in preferring human wisdom to divine law, Adam and Eve find death and not life. It's do we worship human wisdom or do we submit to the wisdom of God and divine law? That's what's going on there. It's the word of God which directs. It was just one command. They were free to, to eat everything but one. And so we'll, we'll, we'll look at that more closely. But we know what happens. Adam falls. Adam and Eve experience spiritual death. We're all born with the tendency to sin. We're born under Adam's sin. We ratify his choice every time we sin in word, thought, or deed against the divine law. But thankfully, the story doesn't end with Genesis 3, which we'll look at in great detail. I'm just mentioning it now. But we don't, we don't, it doesn't end with the, with the sin of eating from the one tree they were forbidden from, does it? We look in the New Testament, and in the New Testament, there's two prominent trees as well. In the Garden of Eden, there's two prominent trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the New Testament, there's two prominent trees as well. God becomes man in the person of Jesus and as we enter Holy Week, let's walk into it with this, this in mind. That God becomes man in Jesus, and Jesus, who's called the second Adam, is the reverse of Adam. He only does what he sees his father doing. He lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He obeys every word from God. What Adam loses by his sin that brings death, Jesus wins or regains by perfect obedience that is credited to anyone who will believe in him. And then what happens to him? Well, the scripture says, as we will celebrate on Friday, as we will recognize, um, he dies, and he dies on a tree. 1 Peter 2 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That God has this wonderful picture that by eating from a tree, so comes death. By the crucifixion of the God-man on a tree, so comes life. And we'll come Friday night and celebrate the beauty of redemption. That God doesn't say game over and just destroys with no hope. But when there is sin by eating from the tree, he becomes man and dies on a tree. And because of that tree and our Savior's death and resurrection, we are reconciled to God. We will one day see him face to face. And one day, we will once again see the tree of life. This tree of life makes another appearance. It's in the last chapter of the Bible. Genesis 22, 1 through 5, we have this future paradise, this future Eden, this future uh, glory. 
And this is what it says. The angel showed me, I'm reading Revelation 22, 1 through 5. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. God provides a river into Eden. And there is a water of life comes from a river in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the end of the Bible, last chapter. As crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed because of the sin, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, uh, need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and forever. That's where we're headed. There is a creation in a perfect world with a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is an eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there is fall. So there is creation, there is fall. God becomes a man and comes to live a perfect life, obeying in Adam's place for us and dying on a tree for our sins. There is a cross, a tree of redemption. And then one day, God, Jesus will return and, and bring a new heavens and new earth. He will bring a restoration, a consummation, and there again we will be gathered before God, and the tree of life, the healing of the nations, will be there again. The creation, the fall, the redemption, the return of the Lord, and the restoration. In each place, we find strategically a tree. And it is the tree of our Savior's death that makes all of this possible, the cross and the resurrection. As we enter into this week and prepare for Friday, we are preparing to recognize what Jesus has done for us, that God created everything perfect in Eden. He gave life, he gave paradise, and he ruled. And yet man rebelled and everything has gone wrong. And that doesn't answer in detail every cry of every heart in the room. There's mystery in suffering, but it does tell us because of sin, the world is wrong, but there is redemption available in Jesus and he will make all things right. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.